Somebody help. I've got to go back and say prayers again. A ghost. A ghost. My name is Psyche. I have come forward in time wearing this veil so no one could identify me. My mission here is to give this veil to Suzanne so, so she can take it home and whenever she doesn't want Bob to know what she's thinking about, she wears the veil. And Bob, when you see the veil on Suzanne, you will know you're in serious trouble. <laughs> <laughs> huh? huh? You gonna get rid of the rest of the outfit? <laughs> Stop there. Oh, that looks Yes, it did. <laughs> Marcy, just a point of clarification: there. is that psyche or Oreo? Psyche. <laughs> Didn't wear one, but if it's Oreo, then I'm frightened. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Marcy. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, God. Well, just be warned if somebody comes knocking at your door tonight, to stay, to spend the night there. <laughs> <laughs> Marcy, bless, <laughs> bless your heart. It's pretty too. <laughs> okay, let's let's do. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have to do two sections next time. They're they're not long, so let's do section three. Remember, in section two, um, Elliot had two sections. The the first half were those stanzas that were unfolded in couplets, dealing with the, the four basic elements, earth, fire, air, and water. And you remember in all of them, Ellie was presenting things that go to dust, that all things come to dust. And some of the images of the, of the house, uh, I think, were meant to associate with um, Little Gideon itself, because you remember Little Gideon was that home owned by the Ferrars. Um, devoted to Christian worship, the Eucharist and prayers through the hours. Um, and they were visited by um, Charles I when he was fleeing from the Puritans um, before he was taken and, and executed. In the second section, remember, Eliot presents, um, presents us with, a, I think, an image of himself walking the streets after a bombing when the German planes had bombed. And there's that imagery of the, of the flickering dove, which I, I think we're meant to associate both with the German planes and the Holy Spirit. Because it, I, I think for Elliot, and it's certainly been true for most of the work that we've done here, we know that God is never absent. And that very often, violence can be an occasion for grace. That it brings us to our knees. Um, we, we live most of our lives probably too much thinking we're self-sufficient and invulnerable and can manage well enough on our own and, and too often find out that that's not the case. Um, 
and it's during this um, walk, this round, as a probably a marshal, a flight marshal, that he encounters this figure who I, I think we're meant um, to think of as a, a Dante figure and maybe a compound figure, Dante and Ezra Pound, or possibly some other figures. Remember that at the end of that second section, um, the figure that he meets tries offers him this what on the surface seems like consolation, but it's not. It's just a reminder again of the truth of that whole section, the whole second section, and that is disasters all around us. There's a catastrophe. London's being bombed by the Germans, and. It, it, when everybody else is probably panicking and running and fleeing for their lives, taking cover, Eliot's reminding us that very often it's only in catastrophes that we really come to ourselves because then we have to deal with death. I think I, I, think I mentioned um, that, that episode I had with a student when I was at Magdalen. We were doing um, Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale. If, I don't know if you know the play, but it, you, all, all of you have done it together here. We've done it. Remember that Leonti accuses his wife and um, sends the child away to be killed and what he does leads to the death of his son and ultimately, or during the middle of the play, we think that it's led to the death of Hermione and he loses everything. One of the students' comment on the play when we were doing it at Magdalen was, why is it that so often we don't make the changes we should unless we, we're, we're facing the prospect of losing everything? It, it, to me, it's a measure of how deep our pride is that sometimes we don't make the changes that we should until something really potentially disastrous happens, and then then we have to take a look. I think it's that kind of scene here. London's being bombed. Um, the, the ghost meets him during this calamity. There half people are dying. They're losing their property. Um, a nation is on the verge of being destroyed. Um, and this is what the, this, this figure leaves him with. And he says, to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. I, the irony can't be missed. This is a crown. The city's being destroyed, virtually destroyed. And he's reminding him of, of the, the success of what he's done during his life. Because Eliot was a, um, a successful poet. To set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. Here's the crown. First, the cold friction of expiring sense without enchantment, offering no promise but bitter tastelessness of shallow, shadow fruit as body and soul begin to fall asunder. How consoling is that? <laughs> We've got one foot in the grave. Um, second, the conscious impotence of rage at human folly and the laceration of laughter at what ceases to amuse. When we go through life critical of let's say the political regime around us, the, the political current, when we just watch um, us as humans and the stupid things we do, you know, the impotence of rage, what good will it do? You know, I mean, um, to, to rage at this because it's going to go on. It was that way 10 years ago, it was that way 100 years ago, it's going to be that way five years from now. Second, the conscious impotence of rage at human folly. And last, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done to reach that point in our lives where we go back in memory and recall things and are embarrassed to recall them. Because no matter how good we think we were at the time, when we look back in age, we see we were never quite as good as we would like to think we were. 
And last, the, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been. The shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue. That's the crown on which we're going to um, um, put a final stamp on our life's work. Um, and he goes on, then fool's approval stings, the things that we thought we did so well, when people approve of them, it, it's embarrassing. From wrong to wrong, the exasperated spirit proceeds, unless restored by that refining fire, where you must move in measure like a dancer. The whole effort of the quartets is in the direction of a purification. Um, for us to enter into that still point moment, to separate ourselves from the world so that we can become better human beings, more like Christ. Unless restored by that refining fire where you must move in measure like a dancer, the day was breaking in the disfigured street. He let disfigured street, the effects of explosions everywhere. He left me with a kind of valediction and faded on the blowing of the horn. Section three. <clears throat> there are three conditions which often look alike yet differ completely. Flourish in the same hedgerow, attachment to self and to things and to person, detachment from self and from things and from persons, and growing between them, indifference, which resembles the others as death resembles life. Being between two lives, unflowering between the, the live and the dead nettle, this is the use of memory for liberation, not less of love, but expanding of love beyond desire and so liberation from the future as well as the past. Thus, love of a country begins as attachment to our own field of action and comes to find that action of little importance, though never indifferent. History may be servitude, history may be freedom. See, now they vanish, the faces and places, with a self which as it could love them to become renewed, transfigured in another pattern. Sin is, sin is behubly, but all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. That's from Dame Julian. He will end the poem with those lines. Just remember that. We won't, we won't go there tonight, but just remember that, they, that the end of the poem will echo these, pick them up again. Sin is behubbly, but all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. If I think again of this place and of people, not wholly commendable, of no immediate kin or kindness, but some of peculiar genius, all touched by a common genius, united in the strife which divided them. If I think of a king at nightfall, of three men and more, on the scaffold, and a few who died forgotten in other places here and abroad, and of one who died blind and quiet, why should we celebrate these dead men more than the, the dying? It is not to ring the bell backward, nor is it an incantation to summer, summon the specter of a rose. We cannot revive old factions, we cannot restore old policies, or follow an antique drum. These men, and those who oppose them, and those whom they oppose, accept the constitution of silence and are folded in a single party. Whatever divisions separated us during life, are not there in heaven, because nobody's in heaven who's not united. We saw that in uh, 
in Dante's Paradiso, if you remember, when, when he presented the Franciscans and the Dominicans, and, and, and um, he, he showed us that in um, Dominus's circle, there were all a number of people that St. Thomas vigorously opposed who were in the circle of that rose. Because Thomas was really clear, he could never have attained what he did if he hadn't been forced to learn to see things by the errors that people presented him with. The fact that they were wrong made him have to think more clearly to answer them. So there was a gift even in error. And he acknowledged that by placing those people where he did. He was indebted to them. Um, and are folded in a single party. Whatever we inherit from the fortunate, we have taken from the defeated, but they had to leave us a symbol, a symbol perfected in death, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, by the purification of the motive in the ground of our beseeching. Okay, let's try to justice to this ending. Very, very quickly. These are some of the themes that we've talked about in the last two weeks in a somewhat glancing way because we always, we're always moving forward. I, I can't do It's a feast day. <coughs> so help yourself. Some of the major themes, the injustices of the gods. Remember that Oriol set out to write her letter to bring a case against the um, gods. I forgot until just this week, by the way, just to let you know. I was reminded of it. It's, I just, I haven't read C.S. Lewis in a long time, and he just has not been on my mind. He's got a collection of essays called um, God in the Dock. It's a wonderful collection of short essays. And it's so, it's so appropriate in, term, in light of this because Oriol is putting God in the dock, right? She's taking God to court to bring her accusations against him. So he knew that the modern temper was against God. That by and large the secular world hated God, um, took a judgment against him. So just remember that title, God in the Dock. She's writing this complaint to prove how unjust they've been to her. Okay, and remember it's written for the Greeks, somebody from the Greek land. So we're to understand that as it's being written to a modern rationalist, a secular mind that in all likelihood would agree with her. If she had an accusation bringing it to God's, most Greeks, most rationalists would say yes, for sure. Um, the theme of the, the plight of women, that as a woman she was brought up in a male-dominated world surrounded by power, um, she was made to feel her insufficiency everywhere, her ugliness. Her father had nothing good to say about her ever. And that position of her father, remember, had the support of um, the gods because the king had his power by divine right. Um, the city, remember, it's an image of self-sufficiency. It comes into existence after, the, after um, Cain's exile. We're going to see that um, in a, a really dramatic way tonight. Um, the education, um, Fox is Oriole's educator, tutor. I, I think I mentioned this last week, didn't I, that she had two tutors, 
and the significance of that in light of Plato's Republic, that Fox is the educator of her intellect and Bardi's the, um, the educator of um, the athlete, the, um, it produces two different virtues. Aristotle would say the one is the intellectual virtue, the other is a moral. And, and if you think about it, it's so important. It, um, you very often have athletes in class, classrooms shy because they feel inferior when they've got bright kids answering who are so articulate you know, in a classroom. If you put those bright kids out on a soccer field or a basketball court, they're going to have the same feeling. Um, to the, the, according to Aristotle and Plato, this is Aristotle's ethics too, the, the best education consists of bringing both of those things together. Because without them, something lost. You want somebody out on a, on a field of athletics because it helps them develop courage. Um, you want somebody in a, in a classroom reading books because you want them to learn how to use their mind. You, in, in a good educational system, you want to bring both of those things together. You want somebody to not be afraid to step forward, to have the courage to do hard things. Um, not just perform sports, but the way he uses his mind, he or she uses the mind. The theme of beauty, um, Oriole knows that she's ugly, and at some point she comes to believe pretty fiercely that if, if, if she was wrong and the gods were right, she will never be able to see them anyway because she's ugly. That the, the gods will make, make no place for her until she's beautiful, till she has a face, till we have faces. And you know that everything that happens in the chapel garden at the end is surrounded in beauty. Everything about it speaks of the beautiful. Um, the last week, um, what came into focus last week was how important this conflict is between possessive love and um, what, what I called last week the, the imago naturalite Christiana, the, the natural image of Christ, that at the center of every soul is an image of Christ at work, and psyche's that image. So the great tension here is between those two things. The tendency in us to say, it's mine, I want this. I want to be left alone, I want to be able to do what I want to do, and Christ who is calling us back to the Father. That, that struggle, I think, really defines the struggle of the whole work. Um, the conflict between um, faith and reason, um, over and over again we see Oriole using her mind to, to um, justify her, to justify her self-pity, to blame Psyche. When um, Even later in the book, when um, remember when she's going to lose Fox, when she's going to make him free, she suddenly regrets it because she, she knows what it'll be like without it. And then even after that, she has few good words to say about Bardia. You know, when he has to go home after the battle and leaves her alone, she's angry. And at one point, she recognizes that what she thought was a love of him was, I can't, three-fourths three hatred. It, it shows that underneath the love that we have for so many people so often is a hate. Because if we lose that thing, we hate them. There's something wrong with the way we love. We keep seeing that in her again and again and again. The theme of sacrifice is made explicit when Psyche has to go. The theme of reading that we don't read very well. Remember, she doesn't see things well at the palace at all. And she uses her mind to justify everything that she would like to believe was the way it was. And last week, um, we reached that point when she came home from 
the visit at the castle and put on her mask and enter the darkness. She isolates herself. Even though she's a wonderful queen, something of her inner life goes into exile. She buries, she buries Oriole and um, doesn't have anything to do with her for almost 40 years. So um, that brings us up to today. Um, so the first eight books from the death of Oriole's mother um, to her visit with Psyche in the tower um, the coming of Trunia, I think that's um, to, um, no, it's, it's Oriole's vision of the mountain to the coming of Trunia, when Trunia comes to the, to the palace. Tonight, it's from that point, um, from the time that Oriole became queen to the time that she takes her accusation against the gods, so that covers the whole of our book. Um, tonight couple of things that are important for this week. I wanted to talk about this for a couple of weeks, but I've, I've held off because I wanted everybody to, to have a clear picture of just how important possessive love is. In, in our Christian, in our Catholic faith, one of the great traditions, um, it's always alive and well. It, I mean, there are, there are circles of contemplative people today, and, and most of Christians, Catholics and non-Catholics, who, who don't take part in that life, um, are aware of the contemplative life, even though they've committed themselves to an active life. Be a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, it doesn't, doesn't matter. But something that I want to say about both of them, because it really bears on this um, in ways that I don't think we often see. Aristotle said, um, what, three centuries before Christ's coming, that the contemplative life was the highest form of life because in the contemplative life, a person puts his mind and heart on what's unchanging, eternal being. There cannot be anything greater. That's, that's Aristotle. Plato would have agreed, too. The contemplative life is the richest life. The mystics know that. That's why they give their lives to it. The longing to be one with something that's unchanging, not subject to the vicissitudes of life, that you can count on. You know it's there. The discipline of doing that. The act of life, um, what's the parent, the, is it um, Miriam and Martha? Who, Mary, in, the, Mary, Martha. Mary and Martha? Rachel huh? and Leah also. Yeah, who are images, taken usually as images of the contemplative act of life. Mm -hmm. Is it who? Um, Mary and Martha. Mary. Who washes Christ's feet? Is it Mary? Mary. Huh? Mary. Mary. No, Martha does the washing. Martha serves. Martha's busy with serving. Yeah, and... And Mary, is, is she the one who washes Christ's feet? Well, who, there's a one with the woman that washes Christ's feet with her hair could be Mary Magdalene. It's but in the scene where he says she's chosen the better part when, oh, when Martha is complaining because she's doing all the work. So we have a number of examples in the Bible where Christ is clear about the difference that... Um, that Miriam's the one who washes the feet? Mary. Mary? Has chosen the better part because she's serving Christ directly. Well, no, she's, Martha. She's not serving him. She's sitting at his feet. She's listening. listening. She's, she's contemplating. I mean, that's a, that's a contemplative. Yeah. Yeah. She's one with him. Yeah. Um, the, the issue, and he says she's chosen the better part. Aristotle, several centuries before, said contemplative life always happy. It, it, um, 
It offers the, the greatest degree of happiness. The active life is good. The church recognizes it. There's a good to, to bury him. I should have gotten this. I should have looked this up. When she serves, when she serves, she's serving Christ. She's still serving. She's doing a good. The, the, one of the dangers in the active life is that when we engage in an active life, it always requires an object. Somebody needs us. A doctor, a teacher, a lawyer, right? Um, so, in some sense, there's always a risk for us to our own egos because somebody needs us. So the danger is that there can, there can be a quality of something self-possessive in the way that we do things actively. Because even if we do things for others, and that's the way that we look at them, I mean, think about Oriole, there's, a, there's a, so often an element of something possessive in what we do. Um, it's just a danger. I mean, there's a, there's a corresponding danger in the contemplative life that we can, um, we can enter into it in the wrong spirit and, and not finally rest in God. The reason for bringing this out now is that um, Oriole's very active. She does a lot you know, from the time that she puts that veil on. And she serves a lot of good, but we, we, we learn during that time that so often what she does still has wrong motives. Um, as much as she'd like to think she loves Barty or the fox or she comes to a point late in the book when she says, and I'll get to it in a minute, remember when her father takes her into the pillar room, presents her to the mirror and says, who is Ungut? And she says, I'm Ungut. So at some point she has to come to that point where she realizes that that's who she is and that's a part of everything she does. It's not until all that happens at the end clears that up and we've got to get there. but. It's good just to keep that in mind because what Lewis is showing us in self-possessive love, it's, you can't miss it here, is that it's so disguised, it's so veiled, I and mean, we can present ourselves to the public as being really good people and not see that there's something in us that's self-serving, even if we don't want to admit it. The theme of poetry, it's been a major thing all along. Turn to page 275. I've been saying from the beginning, remember in the ancient world, poetry was one of the, probably the highest form of wisdom, because it's the poet that spoke to us about divine and human things. The poets could reveal to us things other people couldn't, even the philosophers. The fundamental difference between um, poetry and other kinds of knowledge, philosophy, history, whatever, physics, doesn't matter. Poetry always presents us something as experience. It's not ideas. It's, an, it's not a knowledge about. Ideas are about something. Ideas always involve an abstraction. We have to abstract from something, it takes the form of an idea. So we know something through an idea. In poetry, we have um, um, knowledge by experience. We enter, we return to the world. We're allowed to go back to the world and re-enter it so that something can happen. It's almost like a grace because we're allowed to go back um, and experience something that. Possibly in the hands of good poets is renewing. 
We could even see redemptive in some ways. I mean, certainly in this story, what happens to Oriol is redemptive. We can share in that redemption, not as an idea. We go back and live the experience with her. So pro poetry offers us a knowledge as experience, not as ideas. Eliot and um, C.S. Lewis, men like that who are, you know, in our, of our time, particularly Lewis and the Inkling group, um, believed in the central importance of literature at its best, because at its best, it gave us a knowledge that was universal. Even if it was about a particular person, it could take us to depths that show us something about the depths that all people could relate to. On that page, 275, remember when he comes to that little forest chapel, or she, Oreo comes to that forest chapel, she meets this priest, um, and she has questions about the goddess on the altar, and he says he will tell her the story if she gives him some money, and she does. And he says on page 275, um, oh, that's because she's a very young goddess. She has only just begun to be a goddess, for you must know that like many other gods, she begun by being mortal. I'm going to come back to this because this is crucial. How has she got it? She's not so lately goddess that she's still a she is she is so lately goddess that she's still a rather poor goddess, stranger. Yet for for one little silver piece, I will tell you the sacred story. Thank you, kind stranger. Thank you. History will be your friend for this. Um, now she hears and she says that she uses the word again on 276 in the middle of the page. It's the sacred story. He said I saw that he was rather silly. By sacred story, he's telling her a myth. It's the Cupid Psyche myth. And one of the meanings I think we're meant to take away from this, what makes it a sacred story is that it's universal. In some sense, it's going to the root of things. C.S. Lewis and the Inklings called that kind of poetry mythopoeic. The making of myths. And for them, they believe that the greatest myths always go back to the most important story. That story was the incarnation, the death of Christ and his resurrection. And those of you who remember what we did with the Iliad and the Odyssey and um, the Aeneid, remember that every one of those stories, um, in some sense, had intuitions of Christ. Achilles doesn't become the man he is capable of becoming until he dies and, the, and accepts his death. When he does, he goes back into battle. Nobody can touch him. He, he just can't be stopped. And you remember that every one of those stories ends with the parousia, the return of a king, bringing power and judgment. So every one of those stories had intimations of Christ. So there was in Lewis's mind the sense that there was this ultimate story. You could call it an Ur story, you know, the ultimate. Um, and all other stories, good stories, are variations on that one thing. I think you all know that. Um, I know when, when we're watching a movie, the, the test of a good movie for me is um, the cost of love. When a, when a story's a really good story, people usually have to go through something and they weather it and come out better people. Um, so to the degree that stories participate in that truth, they tend to be better stories. Um, when we, we get a sense of this when Oriol's listening to the story. Um, bottom of 275. So he went on, as such priests do, all in sing-song voice and using words which he clearly knew by heart, 
And to me it was as if the old man's voice and the temple and I myself and my journey were all things in such a story, it's like he's telling her her story. All of us have that experience, don't we? We're in the middle of a story and somehow we identify with it. it, it, can, it I mean, it can bring tears to our eyes. Something will happen because we're a part of that story. We know it in our hearts. We've experienced it. Um, behind this story, remember, is the Cupid Psyche myth. And remember, um, I'm going to be doing what Fox does right now. I'm a little bit reluctant, but let's do this anyway. Um, Remember, what's behind the story is the, is the Cupid myth, the, the Cupid psyche myth. Aphrodite, is, in the Greek world, is an image of divine love. Not something else, divine love. It's not Zeus or Hermes, or it's, it's love. Her son was Cupid, and Cupid, remember, is um, the one who falls in love with Psyche and wants to marry her. In some sense, um, when they talk about Aphrodite being jealous, I think that's a human way of talking about the way in which when a human soul begins to love earthly things more than gods, the gods get angry. And Cupid, in, in, in the scheme of things here, is like a, in, um, a prefiguring and prefiguring intuition of Christ because he moves towards the earthly order. And we'll see this actually work out a little bit in, in this way at the end because you know that Cupid sends Psyche into exile, and at the end, um, she's reconciled to him. The god appears. Um, it, it, I think we're meant to see that it's Cupid, but in some sense, it's an image of Christ. It's Christ coming to, to bring judgment on Horiel uh, at the very end. Visions, the theme of visions. Through most of the story, we've, um, we've seen the tension, the conflict between faith and reason. Um, reason, we've seen, constantly makes excuses to do away with belief. Uh, Oriole's always using her mind to excuse or to change, to minimize, to justify what she does um, before she will admit the truth. Um, a change takes place towards the end. It's no longer just a tension between faith and reason. Um, it's a tension between reason and visions and dreams. And it's interesting to me that, that visions and dreams take on the importance they do um, because typically for us as humans, dreams and visions we tend to associate with an unconscious life, the sub-rational. Um, it, it's, it's what escapes, gets around reason. So reason isn't interfering. So she, she tends to have these when she's exhausted or asleep. In a couple of instances, she walks into a dream. She's changing, um, but it, it's a world in, in which reason has been relaxed. Um, something else is being allowed into her, and in those visions she's seeing a greater truth to herself, and they begin to break in and um, finally bring her to herself. Um, so we shift from a tension between faith and reason, where reason tends to explain things away, to um, a tension between reason and visions. Um, and the visions are, um, are overpowering. They take her to a depth that reason can't reach. Um, sacrifice. 
Um, in the beginning, we saw that sacrifices were implied in the House of Ungood. They become explicit with um, psyche sacrifice. At the end, the connection between Ungood and what happens with sacrifices becomes even more explicit because um, because of what Oriole learns to see about herself and what she hears, I think, largely from Ansett. Because Ansett says to her, you took my husband's life, you drank his blood, you devoured it. You've got the, and those have been the terms used to describe Ungat all along. So, and he, ne Lewis never mentions Christ, but I think, I think it's impossible to read these things without hearing Christ. I think, I, didn't I talk about that last week at the center of the inferno? The last images in the Inferno art have to do with eating. Yeah. Remember, did I talk about that? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so appropriate because if, if hell is the opposite of heaven, if we find people in hell devouring each other, that's what we'd expect to find because in heaven we find a God who offered himself so that others could live. So the image that we're invited to take seriously in our life is to offer ourselves as bread and wine for each other, that, that, that we give up our lives for each other. And what we see here is when we don't, when Oriol doesn't, what she ends up doing is devouring everybody. That's what Ansett's accusation. She says, you devoured everybody. It wasn't just Bardia. She says, you, you took um, Rodigals. She had a I'll get to that passage, but she says, you took all of their lives, you ate them up. So in Oriol, you've got a counterimage to Christ. Um, her, her possessive love took the form of eating, devouring other people for herself. Um, Ansett says of her that she drank up his blood. She devoured him. The spring season, this is when things turn. Um, where are we? It's interesting because it's a, it's a prelude of Easter. Remember that she comes to the festival after the um, the revelations begin to come to her and she has to participate in it as queen and when it's all over the crowds come pouring out and around the uh, around the house of Bunga with everybody um, crying out he's born, he's born again, he's born again. It's an Easter rite, it's a spring rite. Um, the earth is returning to its um, to its life, things coming to life again and it's interesting that it's at this point that Oreo herself is coming to life. So it's happening in this Easter, it's a prefiguration of Easter, this Easter ritual is she herself is also, she's coming out of the darkness. Um, all the painful things that she's having to go through right now are gonna bring her to a new life. Two we have faces, this notion. Um, Paul in Corinthians says this, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully as I am fully known. So faith, hope, love remain, but the greatest of these is love. Um, we won't see God face to face until we have faces. Lewis says that, it's on, um, there's two passages. Actually take, I want you to see these, so just to, to underline them. Um, two things in this context. Look at 275. It's that, it's that page we already looked at. Remember when the priest is, um, is answering Oriel's questions about the goddess and he says, 
For you must know that like many other gods, she began by being mortal. She began by being mortal. There was something lacking in her face. At the very end, she will become Psyche. She will have a face. She will be Psyche. And at that point, she will be in the presence of the God. It's Cupid, but I think it's really Christ. Uh, Lewis knew that. We can't see God till we have faces. And there's that other quote, I can't remember the passage where he says, uh, and we shall know him, we shall know him as he is, for we shall see him, we shall see him as he is, for we will be like him. You all remember that? That's one of Paul's letters too. We shall see him as he is, for, for we shall be like him. That is, we will have a face like Christ. We won't see Christ until we ourselves have gone through that purification. The church fathers had this belief. This was central to the Christian belief at the beginning of the beginning of Christianity. Deus fit homo ut homo firet Deus. God became human so that humans might become God. Remember, Psyche began as a mortal, but she will end as a god. At the very end of the story, Oriol, who began ugly and deformed, will look into that mirror with her sister and say to herself, you too are psyche. I mean, she'll hear the God speak those words to her. Um, we, we get images of that in the Transfiguration, yeah, um, at the mountain, um, when Peter sees the Transfiguration. My mind is just going, he says, let's stay here because he's so overwhelmed by what he sees at the transfiguration. We have intimations of what it will be like after we die, but somehow we will take on a different body. That we, Christ came here to take on our nature. He took it back. So when we reunite with him, hopefully we all will, we will take on a body like his, a glorified body. We will share in his divinity. Start out as a human. Um, in the end times, share his divinity with him. We have to, we have to feel something of that at the end when Psyche or Oriel looks into the pool, and the voice says, "You too are Psyche." That it's not just the human soul anymore. A transformation has taken place. Um, uh, let's see what else. That's it. What I'd like to do, and it's interesting at the end. Um, it's been one of the great motifs in so much of the literature that we've read. When she comes to the end of her life and faces her reckoning, she returns to the garden. It's there that she will be reunited with Psyche and she will see Cupid. I'm going to call him Cupid, but I think it's really Christ. What I'd like to do is, is go through some passages and then talk about them because there's a lot, there's a lot here, some troubling things to talk about. but. Anything, any comments about any of this? What do you think about the, the term unget? Unget. Oh, I could. Unget. Just what you said. Go ahead, because you've un- obviously got it on your. I don't know, I just like to like your thoughts on that. Just un would be not, get. or unmade, or un. And then get or unreceive obtaining. Yeah. So, no, uh, not getting or 
I think the opposite of that could be giving, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or not? Or just wait a minute. Yeah. Ungift. Unreceived. Gift is it a play on the word gift? Well, if you think, or if 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 unga means anything at the end, because it's, the the figures are pretty clear that she's unga, and she spent her life being devouring, that she's just taken. Mm -hmm. And Fox says that when he apologizes for her, when she reads her accusation of the God say enough, and he wants to take the blame, he says it's my fault. And he says the one thing that I didn't teach you is um, that unga is a, it's what do you say? It's a demon. I mean, it, it's the it's, it's the ugliness of the human soul. And he said, I never taught you that, and I should have. Okay. Um, we've got to go through this, because everything happens at the end. So let's. Okay. I want to just quickly go through some. Um, when, we, um, when we ended last time, Oriol had just come back from the um, from her visit to the castle, trying to persuade Psyche to come away, and tempting her and causing her to go into exile. And um, she saw the, the castle destroyed and then goes back home. She puts on her mask and um, goes into hiding. But when she comes back, remember she goes up, I'll just take a look at this. I want to just quickly go through some lines just to highlight them so we have them together. Because this line is going to be repeated again and again at the end. On page 208, she tries to put Aura, Psyche's room into order. But this is what she does. I hung in their proper places, all these things that um, were a part of her childhood. I wished all to be so ordered that if she could come back, she would find all as it had been when she was still happy and still mine. There it is explicit. Then I locked the door and put a seal on it, and as well as I could, I locked a door in my mind. She locks herself up too. She wants to keep things as they were in order to possess them so that she can have them all. Um, she's going to repeat that again and again. Um, remember, um, Um, Trunia comes and she offers, she really shows her potential as a, as a queen because that night when they have to decide what to do with Trunia, she immediately makes decisions. Um, she will do battle with her brother, um, with, sorry, with his brother, and she makes that agreement shortly afterwards with the priest to give them the property that's been a disputed piece of property. She takes control everywhere. Um, it's interesting to me, I don't know what you guys thought about it, but remember her, her arrangement with the priest was that the king would be able to appoint the guards and the priest's response was, who will pay for them? I mean, he was trying to be shrewd too. It was interesting to me, it reminded me of Henry wanting to appoint bishops and priests. They're not, they're not bishops, they're soldiers. But she wanted to have control over the soldiers of Ungat's house. So the political realm had control of the soldiers in that house. They were no longer under the priest. It's just an interesting relationship there, and I, I don't think it's unimportant. Um, remember, she defeats um, Truni's brother, Argon, and that night after the battle, 
She goes back to the banquet hall with all the soldiers, and, they, and Barney excuses them, so she's really angry with him because he has to go off to his wife. Um, and she gets drunk. I want to take a look at that because her words at the end, 256. Um, that night, she, she's the only woman present, and she gets drunk, and she becomes aware of how beast-like men are. She's absolutely disgusted with them. She says on the bottom 254, when I got away and up into the cold and stillness of the gallery, my head reeled and ached, and fought. I thought, what vile things men are. They were all drunk by now, except the fox who had gone early, but their drinking had sickened me less than their eating. She describes the eating like they're all adults. Down below, I was a great sad queen in a song. I did not check the beard tears that rose in my eyes. I enjoyed them to say all. I was drunk. I played the fool. Um, go to the end. Um, Remember, she's drunk. She's going to bed that night after she's killed a man. First time she's standing close to that. I'm queen. I've killed a man. I'm drunk like a man. All warriors drink deep after the battle. Barty's lips on my hand were like the touch of lightning. All great princes have mistresses or lovers. There's the crying again. No, it's only the buckets at the well. Shut the windows, Pooby. To your bed, child. Do you love me, Pooby? Kiss me good... It, it, you, you, can hear, it's, you can hear an alcoholic. I mean, you can hear somebody drunk who, who's, the, the, the way, the, what happens to men or women when they, when they drink too much, and then they sentimentalize all their emotions. They sort of glamorize them and inflate them so that they feel nobler by them. I mean, he's captured it perfectly. To your bed, child, do you love me, pooby? Kiss me good night, good night. The king's dead, he'll never pull my hair again. A straight thrust and then a cut in the leg. That would have killed him. I am queen. I'll kill Oriole too. God, those are stunning lines. Yeah. It, it's like you're entering into the psyche of, and watching a woman who's successful politically. And inside, um, it, I mean, what can you feel except a sorrow to see what's happening? Uh, next page, in the middle of the page, I locked Oriole up or laid her asleep as best I could somewhere deep down inside me. She lay curled there. It was like being with child, but reversed. The thing I carried in me grew slowly, smaller and less alive. I want to go to... I'm going to skip the chapel scene because I'm assuming you all know it. She hears the story from the priest, remember? And she so identifies with it, but she's outraged when the priest tells her that the sisters actually saw the palace and the god. Because in her own mind, remember she did see the palace, but it's one of the things she's refused to admit. And in, in, the, in the original myth, the sisters do see it explicitly. There's no question about it. So she accuses the gods of being false, and it's on the basis of that that she goes home and begins to write her book. Um, now, it's at that point that the story begins to unravel. So I want to look at some passages here. On page 287, um, She's written the book and reached the point where she accuses the gods of having no answer to what she accuses them of. 
And then a number of things happen. On page 287. Since I cannot mend the book, I must add to it, to leave it as it would be, to die perjured. I know so much more than I did about the woman who wrote it. What began the change was the very writing itself. Anybody want to comment that? Is that true or not? That's true. Why are you shaking your head, Doc? Because when you write something down, it's different than what you have in your head. Um, it's more solid. You can't just sort of skip over it as a pale memory or... Or a thought. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's got more body to it. And it's a, it's, this is so incarnational. It's the fact that it's got a body. In our heads, ideas are incorporeal. They're angelic. They have no body. I'm saying this really truly. Ideas in our heads are incorporeal. We're most like angels then. But we're corporeal creatures. It's really important for us to give a body to things, to give a thought. In thought, we can play loose with them. When we sit down, to, if anybody's struggled with writing, I'm assuming you all have, you know how hard it is, and very often when we get it down, we'll say, no, that's not quite it. Yes. Or that. And very often, when you think you know something, you will write it and, yes. and, and, and see that you begin to discover things while you're writing. Yep. If you're writing a story, I mean, think about it. Did C.S. Lewis have the concrete details of this all in his mind before he started? There's no way. No writer sits down to do something without discovering things in the act of writing. And she's really clear about that. Um, she begins to discover things about herself while she writes. Um, then she gets a visit from this embassy from a king to the south and east, and Terran's the great lord of it, the, the, um, one of the um, king's henchmen. And on page 289, he recalls the childhood with Redival and says things to her that she'd forgotten or not seen when she was a child. And remember, she's up to this point, she's had nothing good to say about Redival at all. And then Taran says this, the bottom of the page, yes, a pretty girl, I took pity on her, she was lonely. Lonely, said I? Oh, yes, yes, very lonely. After the other princes, the baby came. She used to say, first of all, Ori will love me much, then the fox came and she loved me little. Then the baby came and she loved me not at all. So she was lonely. I was sorry for her, tee hee hee. Oh, I was a fine young fellow then. Half the girls in Glom were in love with me. That's a dark stroke for her. C.S. Lewis has got a, in his book called Four Loves, he has this wonderful example of the way he's describing, I think, person possessive love from experiences, I think, with himself. It says, when you're in a circle of friends and you have a friendship with a certain person, A and B, and then C comes into the picture, you no longer have B to yourself, now C comes in. And if D comes in, you, no I mean, you have less of him. So that tendency to get envious or jealous of other people because of the friendship that you once had, you no longer do. There's something of that going on here because Oriwa looks back on her, on her time with Rudival with nothing good to say about her. And we're learning that there was something about her she didn't see. Particularly when Fox came, because her attention was devoted to Fox, and then Psyche. 
So it's a, it's a beautiful picture looking back in hindsight to see how much a blindness began to affect the way she saw things. And we saw that in a number of other cases too before this. Remember, um, when, um, when was this? When she and Bardia are making plans to go to the mountain and she's talking to Bardia, the, the issue of the king comes up and I can't remember how, but Bardia says, the king's not such a bad fellow. He, he, he doesn't act well around those things that he doesn't know, but when he's in war, he's okay. She sees a completely different side to her father that she never saw as a daughter. So once again, think about the way we make criticisms all our life because of our sense of injury that keeps us from seeing other people, people, very often we care about, the way other people see them. And she said the same thing about Fox, because when she was um, with Fox, Fox had very little good to say about Bardia. So she begins, she, I mean, she's growing, even when, even when she's putting on her mask, something in her is still teaching her that there's more going on in the world than she sees. Um, so this was what she calls a stroke, 290. This was the only the first stroke, a light one, the first snowflake of a winter that I was entering regarding on, regarded only because it tells of what's to come. Bardi is dying. This is huge in the changes that are taking place in Oreo. She goes after his death to see Ansett um, on page 296. She's trying to console her. She's, she's doing her duty as a queen. Um, but this is, let me just read through some of this because this is really an important change that takes place in her. The top of 296. This was worse than the worst I'd looked for. A flash of anger passed through me. Um, then a horror of misgiving could it, but that was fantastical, be true, but the misery of that mere suspicion made my own voice almost humble. Um, Ansett has just told her that, um, that men's lives can be worn out in more places than the mines, that, that um, Bardia wore his life out serving her as a queen. She didn't like to hear that and gets angry. You speak in your sorrow, lady, but forgive me, this is mere fantasy. I never spared myself more than him. Do you tell me a strong man's break under the burden of a woman's bearing still? Who that knows men would doubt it? They are harder, but we are tougher. They do not live longer than we. They do not, they do not weather a sickness better. Men are brittle, and you, queen, were the younger. She's getting upset. Um, Um, she says that if she'd known, she would have eased his burdens. The queen says, I mean, Ansett says at the bottom, you know him little queen if you think he'd ever have spoken that word. Oh, you have been a fortunate queen. No prince ever had more loving servants. I know I've had loving servants. Do you grudge me that? Even now in your grief, will your heart serve you to grudge me that? Do you mock me because that's the only sort of love I ever had or could have? No husband, no child, and you, you've had all. Oh, you left me, queen. Left you, fool. We're watching two women get um, get into each other's face. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a, it's not men striking out with fists. It's women who are using words 
with, with something of a vicious spirit because they are, re, um, they are both having claims on the same man. I know well that you were not lovers. You left me that. The divine blood will not mix with subjects, they say. You left me my share. Go down. And next morning, the queen's a wonderful early riser and gloom. The pillar room again. I'll not deny it. I had what you left him. That is, he was always going off to work and coming home exhausted. Her look and voice now were such as no woman could mistake. What I cried, is it possible you're jealous? She said nothing. I sprang to my feet and pulled aside my veil. Look, you, you fool, I cried. Are you jealous of this? It's at that point that Ansett realized that she loved him too, and the two women, for a moment, embrace in a shared sorrow because they, they both know they love the same. So for a moment, love draws them together. The bottom of 298, the softness did not last. I'd seen something like this happen in a battle. She describes a moment when men get embarrassed by something that happens and they laugh and in the next instant they're killing each other. Um, um, well, I was saying, 299, you have made me a little better than Lord Bardia's murderer. Bar Bardia's murderer. It was your aim to torment me and you chose your torture well. Be content, you are avenged, but tell me this. Did you speak only to wound, or did you believe what you said? Believe? I do not believe. I know that your queenship drank up his blood year by year and ate his... There it is. Eat my flesh, drink my... It's once again, the, um, Christ implied in a pre-Christian world in what people do with each other. Tell you, she said, tell you. And so take away from him his work... Go down, make a child and a dotard him, keep him to myself at that cost. That is, she would have never said, what are you doing spending so much time with the queen? Come home. She loved him enough to spare him that. And yet he would have been yours, but I, but I would be his. I was his wife, not his doxy. He was my husband, not my house dog. He was to live the life he thought best and fittest for a great man, not that which would pleasure me. You've taken, she accuses him of the sun. Um, do you think I'd lift up my finger if lifting it would stop it? And you could and you can bear that? You ask that, O Queen Oriole, you begin to think you know nothing of love, or no, I'll not say that. Yours is a queen's love, not a commoner's. Perhaps you who spring from the gods love like the gods. It's a dark view of the gods. Like the shadow root, they say the loving and the devouring are all one, don't they? Go down. Where woman's are when she is born, eight children. Yes, she's. Um, Oreo looks at her and says, "She fought battles with Bardia. She shares his scars. Where are yours? Where woman's are when she has born eight children. Yes, saved his life. Why you had used? Why you had use for it? Thrift, Queen Oreo. Too good a sword to throw away. Fa." You're full-fed, gorged with other men's lives, women's too. Barty is mine, the fox is your sister's, both your sister's. It's enough. She's furious and threatens her. She says to her, if somebody else had done this, I would have cut out their tongue. Page 301. What? Afraid of it? She says. <laughs> um, Ansett's not going to back down. Um, I mean, what a wonderful line. She would cut out her tongue because she'd be afraid to hear what she had to say. Um, Oriole storms out, the two women leave like that. And it's at that moment that she begins to reflect on her love for Bardia on page 302. These are striking lines. Um, but I had endless slights and contrivances behind my veil for pushing the talk in such directions as I knew 
would make others mock him because she knows sometimes soldiers make fun of men in the way they look out for their wives. She directly, she directed the conversation in ways that would lead to that kind of making fun of Bardia. I knew others would mock him. I hated them for doing it, but I had a bittersweet pleasure at his clouded face. Did I hate him then? Indeed, I believe so. A love like that can grow to be nine-tenths hatred and still call itself love. One thing's certain in my mad midsummer's fantasies, <coughs> answered dead or better still proved whore, witch, traitorous. She wants to make her as black as she can. When he was at last to be seeking my love, I always had to begin by imploring my forgiveness. Sometimes he had hard work to get it. I would bring him within an ace of killing himself first. This is not a man using physical force on a woman. It's a woman using cunning to give wounds that you will never see on a body. Um, these are sort of stunning. She says in the top of 303, my love for Bardia, not Bardia himself, had become to me a sickening thing. I had been dragged up and out into such heights and precipices of truth that I came into an air where it could not live. It stank, a gnawing greed for one to whom I could give nothing, of whom I craved all. She pictures herself now as this gaping void, that it's just nothing. Um, um, here, let me let me try to go ahead because I want to I want to ask some. Um, in chapter two, remember after she comes back, um, they celebrate the spring ritual. She sees the woman um, who worships um, the ugly or or or, or uh, ungut because she finds comfort um, in it. And then she has this vision of her father on 311, 312. He comes to her, remember, he takes these digging tools, they dig below the pillar room and then go below another pillar room below that. He takes her to a mirror at the, at the, second, the bottom of the second one, presents her before the mirror and says on page 314, who is Ungut, said he, holding my hand, then he led me across the floor and a long way off. She saw the mirror. He says again, who is ungood? She says, I am ungood. My voice came well and out of me and I found that I was in the cool daylight. Um, um, she sees the bad thing, the ugliness of it was her own. Now, let me stop for a second because what happens now just begins to happen rapidly. The first thing she does is she wants to kill her. She wants to get rid of the ungood in her. She thinks about taking a sword to kill herself, knows it, she won't be able to do it, and goes to the river to tie her ankles and jump in when a voice comes to her and says, don't do it. Now let me stop for a minute because at this point the visions are going to come running fast and I want to go through them quickly. But before you, What do you make of this scene in the pillar room when her father comes to her and takes her to these two levels um, to present her before this mirror? What's the mean? He takes these tools, he digs, they, they're digging, she feels like she's digging forever. She, they seem to go on and on and on and on. It's right. a laborious act. And when she gets to the bottom, she's afraid it's going to cave in on her. Any symbolic meanings? What's... Deepest recesses of your soul. You know? Sorry? Like the deepest recesses of your soul. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, what else? Anything well, else? Going down the, into hell on various levels. I mean, I, you know, that was the Dante and all, the thing all over again. I mean, it was. Just, I mean, I was, when I first started into that reading the. Uh, you, you went through yeah. one, got down, and you fell another level, and you fell, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Dante's right. Inferno. Yeah. You know, I thought, you know, you're on a, another Dante Inferno trip. I mean, he yeah. read the, obviously you read Dante, I guess, is what my conclusion is. Oh, he would, yeah. Anybody else? Also, her father has obviously changed. This is not the man who, who beat her, and, you know, me, and, he wouldn't be interested in having her dig that deeply. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, you mean before, before he died? Yeah, right, yeah. before he died. Right. That, that there's some kind right. of, that he has come to, you know, in, in the afterworld, afterlife, he's come to some deeper understanding of himself as well. Interesting figure. Remember when she gives her um, complaint, the father is the first one that says, I'll lessen her. But there, even in the afterlife, there's something yeah. so stern about him. Yes. And it's a, it's a serious question to me whether this would happen without the sternness. Mm -hmm. That however much we don't like him, it's almost like it's essential here that that paternal voice of, of sternness mm -hmm. is what it takes to get there. And the, Sue, did you have something? No, I was trying to hear. I didn't hear what she said. But when I was reading it, I was thinking of her digging down for her soul. The only thing I'd add to that, this is, um, remember we've talked about the uh, city as the place of self-sufficiency? In a sense, in a, in a, in a place of self-sufficiency, you create this image of yourself, and if you go to a mirror, that's what you see. You just see a surface. She'll say later, when she's accusing the gods, when she actually begins to read it, she says, why don't you leave us alone and let us do what we want to do? We're fine without you, on our own. That what's happening in this um, digging scene is that she's going into the earth to a condition prior to the city. It's deeper than the city. Remember, if the, if the city's an image of self-sufficiency, we, we try to live without God. When we look, when, if you were to take Oriole into the mirror room, then what she would have seen was ugliness, a veil, or, you know. He's taking her to a condition before the city. Some primal, some, the depths of her soul, you know, whatever you want to call it. But um, at that depth, removed from the city and its protections in that world, she sees finally. This is, the, this is an important moment, because it's at this point, with her father, that she sees that she's ungood. There's, there's no more denying. I mean, if everything that's going to happen now is just going to flutter. It's just going to uh, come in. Um, it's interesting to me that what's happening with the mirror there, that she's seen something she would have never seen in the mirror in the... In the uh, trio... Uh, actually, 307. Um, I um, remember when, um, when she's in the in the in Unga, or in the house of Unga during the the service, the Easter or the spring service. Mm -hmm. um, she's looking at Unga. She's at the bottom of three seven. A face such as you might see in a loaf, swollen, brooding, infinitely female, 
He was like Bada, as I remembered her in certain times. She sees the ugliness, she associates it with something feminine in herself, but it isn't until her father takes her down in that hole that um, she finally sees um, that she's ungood, that that ugliness is in her. Um, she tries to kill herself, but the voice tells her not, and she goes home, and on page um, 321, she begins to meditate on the advice, the teaching from Fox. Socrates constantly taught that all life was a preparation for death. The Phaedo is the, is the, um, the dialogue that I think is being referred to here. Um, that he sh his, friends, his friends tried to persuade him out of taking the hemlock and, and fleeing his judgment. And he said, I owe everything in my life to Athens. I can't do that. He accepts his death and he prepares his soul to die. One of, the, one of the great values of that dialogue, like so many of the Platonic dialogues, is, is he's saying, we can't live our lives well if we don't prepare for death. And remember, when she, when she gets into the afterlife, and, or here, when she makes her, when she makes her uh, accusation, it's the fox who says, I was wrong, I didn't, I didn't teach you um, that Ungood is ultimately ugly. Um, think about all, all the allusions to the Bible, to the ancient works that we've read. Odysseus can't get home unless he goes to the land of the dead. Aeneas can't get to Italy unless he goes to the land of the dead. Dante can't get up purgatory without going down. We have that parable, um, I think it's in Luke, I can't remember where, the rich man went to hell, remember, and he ignored Lazarus. And um, he goes to Father Abraham and asks that somebody be sent back to his brothers to spare them. And Abraham's comment is, um, you have Moses and the prophets. You didn't listen to them. They're not going to listen to somebody from the den. Death. The lines in Eliot, the, the dead are tongued with fire. We just read it. Um, how important this is. Fox knows something now in the land of the dead that he did not know while he was alive. How many of us pay attention to the land of the dead? Do we hear what they have to teach us? All the great epics, ancient epics, made it clear. You cannot go home. You cannot become who you are if you don't make a place for the dead and listen to them. Christ went to the underworld and came back. How well do we listen to the dead? Um, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop here in a minute because I'm. Gonna, um, she tells she finally. Um, After these realizations about herself, she commits herself to trying to improve herself. She can't kill herself. The voice says, die now because you can't die later. Um, um, you'll meet death in the underworld too. You can't escape it. The only thing you can do is die now or you won't handle it. Um, do you remember those lines? Um, she writes her book and she goes out um, into the garden, yeah, the lines I'm talking about, 318, 
Do not do it, the God said. You cannot escape Ungat by going to the deadlines, for she is there also. Die before you die. There's no chance after. Um, she admits that she's Ungat. Um, She writes her book on page 326. She goes out into the garden to comfort herself, and suddenly she steps into this vision. Um, on page 326, I was walking over burning sands, carrying an empty bowl. I knew well what I had to do. I must find the spring that rises from the river and bring water of death back and give it to Ungat. Um, she can't get up the mountain. A bird comes on 327, probably an eagle, yeah. And um, then the eagle presents her to this assembly in the mountain. And it's here that she begins to tell her story. Um, she accuses the gods of lying to her. Um, on page 332, she says at the top, you leave us nothing, nothing that's worth our keeping or your taking. Those we love best, those are the very ones you'll pick out. Oh, I can see it happening age after age, growing worse and worse the more you revere your beauty. The son turning his back on the mother, the bride on her groom. Is there any relationship that isn't defined like that? Think about parents when they feel like their kids have betrayed them or, you know, I mean, they're doing something. Husbands and wives with each other, um, the same thing. Um, losing somebody and the responses that we have to it. Um, Stolen away by this everlasting calling, calling, calling of the gods, taken where we can't follow. It would be far better for us if we were foul and ravening. Go down. Um, oh, you'll say you've been whispering it to me for these 40 years that I'd signs enough of her palace was real. Could have known the truth if I'd wanted, but now could I want to know? Tell me, tell me, the girl was mine. Mm -hmm. Again, over in the next page towards the top. You're a tree whose shadow we, um, we can't thrive. We want to be our own. There's that self-sufficiently. We want to be our own. I was my own and Psyche was mine and no one else had any right to her. Go down. Do you think I wanted her to be happy that way? It would have been better if I'd been a brute, tear her to pieces before my eyes. You stole her to make her happy, did you? Why, every wheedling, smiling, catfoot rogue who lures away another man's wife or slave or dog might say the same. Dog now. That's very much to the purpose. I'll thank you to, to let me feed my own. I can take care of it. It, need, it needed no tidbits from your table. Remember the illusion in the head of the Bible. Did you ever remember um, whose girl she was? She was mine, mine. Do you not know what the word means? Mine, your thieves, seducers. She goes on and finally the judge says, enough. She stops and she realizes that um, she had been going on if the judge had not stopped her. That's an interesting infernal image. I mean, if the judge had not stopped her, that's an eternal condition. I think we're meant to, she would have gone on and on and on. Yes. The judge has stopped, um, and it's at that point that her father says, I'll lessen her, and she jumps off and Fox catches her, and then he takes responsibility on page 336. He said it was his fault, and then he takes her to this um, little rotunda with um, three walls and it, um, on, on each of the walls are these um, murals of stories. On, on the first one, on 339, 
we see Psyche um, tying her ankles, ready to jump in, and as Oriole's watching, and Psyche's just on the verge of jumping, Oriole shouts out and says, page 340 in the middle, do not do it, do not do it, I cried out madly as if she could hear me. He takes her to the next one on page, um, or here, um, on page 342, it shows Psyche trying to sort out seeds and having the help of ants and doing it all happily, not straining at all. The third one on page 341, she sees Psyche um, crawling in a stealthy manner towards these giant rams. Suddenly they, um, they storm and um, as they move through this thicket with thorns on it, the, the fleece catches and Psyche, Psyche goes and gathers up the fleece, which, remember, is a way of giving beauty to whoever has it. That was a really a tough one for me to do. <laughs> Continue. You, you don't need any more beauty than you have, Marcy. 341. In the next picture, I saw both Psyche and myself, but it was only a shadow. Um, she had her book, sand, um, Psyche had um, a bowl empty. She had to bring back um, the water of death from the underworld. An eagle comes and takes it, and um, um, at the at 342 in the middle, when she came to the foot of the precipices, I vanished away, but the eagle came to her, took her bowl, and brought it back to her brim full of the water of death. Um, well, I have to ask what that means because it's the one that I'm um, most perplexed about. Fox says to her, do you see? And Psyche said, or Oriole says, I do. Um, how did she do it? She seemed almost happy. And Fox says, somebody else bore the anguish. So we're to understand that during all these trials, Oriole was the one who bore the anguish, um, not Psyche. But then he has one more to show on the last wall. On this one in 343, it shows Psyche carrying a casket into the deadlines. She has to bring back beauty. And um, Fox tells her to be careful and watch this one because this is the one in which Psyche is not happy in what she's doing. It's a, it's a grievous load. He says to watch, and he watches. On page 344, Psyche starts to pass through a group um, on this path, and a group in the side comes to her. It's the common people in Gloam reaching out their hands and saying, be our goddess, stay with us, be our goddess. She has to go on. Remember, she, she cannot do anything. She can't look back, she can't speak to anybody, or her task will fail. So, it, it, this, this reminds me of Abraham in the sacrifice. She cannot allow a, an emotion of pity to keep her from doing it. If she, if she responds to the suffering of another, she loses. I want everybody to hold on to that. Remember, this is a this is a woman. I mean, we've been seeing her as, an, as, as a woman all along. She cannot allow her emotions to come into this for her to pass this test. They say, "Stay with us." She goes on. Three forty-four. Um, Wait, said the fox. Sight your eyes fixed straight ahead. Went further. The fox appears to her now on page three forty-five. What are you doing, wandering through a tunnel beneath the earth? What you think it's the way to the deadlands? You think the gods have sent you? To, all he does is explain it away. He uses reason to say to her, none of this makes sense. What you think you see is not there. So it's once again Fox being the intellectual, the rationalist, using his mind to explain things away. 
Has all my teaching taught you no more than this? The God within you is the God you should obey. Reason, calmness, self-discipline. She has to go on, but suddenly, Psyche comes to the third, and there, by the way, three temptations. I mean, think about the temptations of Christ. Three temptations, they're different, but um, she, she has to undergo these three. The bond of 343, when I looked at it, I felt a pity that nearly killed my heart. It was a woman um, comes out of the shadow. It was not weaving, but you could see from its eyes that it had already wept them dry. Despair, humiliation, entreaty, endless reproach, all these were in it. And now I trembled for Psyche. I knew the thing was there only to entrap her and turn her from her path. She re the woman reaches out her arms, and we can see a wound on it, so we know who it is. Her eyes look straight forward, but of course she'd seen it come out of the corner of her eye. A quiver ran through her lips, twitched, threatened with sobbing. She set her teeth in the lip to keep it straight. Oh, great gods, defend her, I said to myself, hurry, hurry her past. Um, and she goes on. Um, after she's, by the way, remember, just quickly, because I want to get to the, some questions here. In the Aeneid, those of you who are in the Aeneid, remember when Aeneas lands at um, Carthage, he goes to Juno's temple, and he reads the Trojan War. And the image he has of Aeneas is not the image he is, because for seven or eight years, he's been failing to find, found a, city. So the image on the, on the murals is of this hero. That's the last thing he can say of himself because he's had eight years of failures. So we feel this discrepancy between the Aeneas there and what's going on. Clearly Lewis is aware. She's before this temple reading these things and she's seeing these trials and she sees herself in all of them. Okay. When she comes out, Fox takes her to this little enclosed area with a, with a, um, it was green and with a pool and Psyche appears with, um, to her and for the first time since the castle scene they're reunited. Um, on page 348, um, the middle of the page, she bent over me to lift me up then when I would not rise she said, but Maya, dear Maya, you too must stand up I have not given you the casket. She went to the underworld to get the casket of beauty, to give it to her. She gives it to her now. I stood up all wet. Now I knew that she was a goddess indeed. Her hands burned me. Go on over. Did I not tell you, Maya, she said, that a day would, was coming when you and I would meet in my house and no cloud between us. Joy silenced me. Um, but. They can't enjoy that moment much longer because suddenly they know that something's happening at the bottom of 349. I knew that all this had been only a preparation. Some far greater matter was upon us. The voices spoke again, but not loud this time. They were awed and trembled. He is coming, they said. The God is coming into his house. The God comes to judge Oriel. Now remember, she judged the gods. They said enough. Fox is going to take her to her own judgment. So he's brought her here to wait for the God's approach. Now the God's approaching for him to judge her. Each breath I drew led into me new terror, joy, overpowering sweetness. I was pierced through and through with the arrows of it. I was being unmade. I was no one. But that's little to say. Rather, Psyche herself was, in a manner, no one. 
I loved her as I would once have thought it impossible to love, would have died any death for her. She's willing now to die, first time. And yet it was not, not now she that really counted. Or she counted, and oh gloriously she did, it was for another's sake. The earth and stars and sun, all that was or, all that was or will be, existed for his sake, and he was coming. The most dreadful, the most beautiful, the only dread and beauty there is, was coming. The pillars on the far side of the pool flushed. With his approach, I cast down my eyes. She and Psyche look into the pool. Two Psyches, the one clothed, the other naked. Yes, both Psyches, both beautiful, if that mattered now, beyond all imagining, yet not exactly the same. You also are Psyche, came a great voice. I looked up, and it's strange that I dared, but I saw no God, and she finds herself returned to the garden. All of this takes place in the garden. Um, and we know that the, the priest, Arnhem, <coughs> takes her books and keeps it um, for the moment when a Greek will come by who will take it to the Greek lands, um, where he hopes it will have a good enough. Okay, I've got some questions here. How are we to understand what happened? Wait, she goes to judgment. Um, there's a couple of questions here. First, what does she learn from the murals on the wall? Because in some way, the murals on the wall line up with her own experiences. Yes or no? Okay, can we line them up? Can we line them up? Like she actually did go to the river and try to kill herself. Yep. And then the one about the separating, that was a vision huh? she had, a dream or something. It, it wasn't, it wasn't. But wait, wait. So one, wait, let's just, I just want to be, so one of them is the dying, right? We know that that corresponds exactly to that moment when she sees she's on good and she wants to go out and kill herself. So that one is a clear reference. The, the seeds, you want to take that up? Sue, did you have a? No, I mean, I agree. She, that's, she had, I thought it was a dream, but maybe not, where she was laboring to divide the seeds. So she was an ant carrying this very heavy mm -hmm. seed ahead of her, laboring mm -hmm. and not knowing that she was going further. But she kept doing it. Yeah. It's also, it's also an exact description of what she was doing with her writing. If you remember the passages about her writing, she had to sort things through yeah. and put everything where it belonged, which was a labor. So it, it relates directly to her in a number of ways. The third one is um, the... Um, Could the, you also uh, say the same thing about... Sorry, Doc? Could you also say the same thing about sorting if you think about what she did as queen? I guess you could. It's a looser. I mean, I guess you could. The, the the description of the writing. I could go back to the passage and show you. If you guys go back to it, you'll see it's pretty. It's pretty close to the vision she had of sorting things through. What about the rams with the fleece, the golden fleece? But can we relate it to anything in her personal life? Oh. Mm -hmm. Is it cold in here? Would somebody like who's anybody there? I want to. Somebody needs a jacket. You have mine. Tom, how are you doing? Okay, you. I've got one. I just haven't put it on yet. I don't know when she saved Bardia in battle. 
it made me think about her talking about her sister's golden curls and her being jealous of her sister having the golden curls. Red eye or what do you say? I think I thought about that too now that you say that. that it just flashed through my mind about mm -hmm. the golden curls. Yeah. I wonder if it's more general that um, Psyche was sent out in exile by Cupid and one of her tasks was to get the golden fleece. It's a beauty and she brings it, mm -hmm. that beauty, it's in a bowl. I mean, it's the casket that you get from the deadline. It's not the, but it's hard for me to, to think about that without thinking about the beauty that Oriole needs because of her, her spiritual ugliness really. But it, um, if it's not an image of something in the soul working to accomplish a beauty. Remember, what, I think what I'm saying here is, or that I'd like to suggest, is that Psyche's an image of the Christ at work in Oriole's soul. So that when Oriole is doing so much of what she does in the ordinary life, without knowing it, Christ is at work in some way. And in this case, it's, it's bringing a beauty back to her. And we won't see until they look in the pool, when she looks in the pool and, and, pool and sees that she's beautiful, that she's too Psyche. Um, although I have, I have trouble with these, these, this one and the one where, she, um, where um, the bird, where she gets the water from the dead. Um, I, that one's a little bit clearer to me, but let's take that. What about the, the getting the, the, water, the, um, the water from the land of the dead, the water of death? Could that be a reference to baptism? Or are we supposed to die, die to ourselves, mm -hmm. die to sin? I think that, I mean, that's... Reborn? Yeah, I mean, for me, when I read this, I can't think about it without thinking, the one, because the, the God said when she wanted to commit suicide, die now, because you can't, you'll meet Ungod in the, in the underworld. Mm -hmm. That Psyche's going into the underworld to get that water is to bring back life from death, whether it's baptism, it's life, I mean water, so that Psyche cannot, cannot cease to be ungod until she dies to herself. And so much of everything she said, I mean that one line that I could, she said, I would be willing to die for her now. That something in her has learned to put ungod away and died. And so she's, she is psyche. She's psyche. Um, what about the last task? Going to the Deadlands to get um, the beauty from the Queen of the Shadows, the Queen of the Dead? I think it's the same thing. That, or how, how can anybody, did anybody comment on that to bring back beauty from the land of, from the Queen of the Shadows of the Dead? I'm, I'm assuming that's Persephone. I think Lewis would know that it's Persephone, the queen of the dead. I had no idea who that was. So per it didn't mean anything to me. Yeah, Persephone um, was the daughter of Demeter and Zeus, and Hades fell in love with her and took her to the um, afterlife, the land of the dead. She became queen, and he tricked her to eat some berries, and. Um, because she did, she, um, she had to remain there when the gods asked that she be released. So three months of the year, she's there, and the rest of the time, she, it's, an, it's, an, it's an image of something life-giving. Once again, it's... Do you think it's temptation? Huh? Temptations? Tempta explain that. What? Well, I was thinking about in this 
in the myth that you gave us, the Psyche and Cupid myth, she opens the box. She goes through all this stuff, and at the end, all these temptations, and at the end, she opens the box of beauty. Remember? Not in C.S. Lewis's story, but in the other story. The ones that I gave you? Yeah. Oh. The first one. Yeah. Go ahead, explain that. Connect it now, clearly. Well, so if it's beauty from, I don't know, it just popped in my head. <laughs> Is it even possible to imagine, certainly in a Christian context, or even in a pagan context, Odysseus, Penelope, let it be. Is it possible to imagine anybody undergoing a metanoia conversion, dying to himself and not being beautiful, whatever their face looked right. like? That if you undergo a death, yeah. genuinely undergo a death, is there anything yeah. you do as a person that won't partake of beauty? And she was both with the ram, and she was trying to deflect the rams. And then, as a result, they left the feast. There was a danger to herself, and then she was willing to die in the end for Psyche. But that was a learning process. She was thirsty, and she, you know, all of that to me was her learning to die so that she could. And that also connects with Christ um, in Philippians, I think it is, when it says that Christ, uh, the oneness with the Father is not a thing to be grasped, but he submitted to the cross and um, was one with the Father as a result of that. I'm not sure what you're saying. Because of the complete self-effacement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't right, you don't grasp the wool from the, the, from the rams. You, you humbly, because the rams ran over her, right? And where she woke up. Mm -hmm. I've got to ask two last questions before we go. They look down in the pool, and the two see each other. Psyche has to be pleased, because remember the last time we saw each other, they were enemies to each other. And when they look in the pool, we hear this voice saying, you two are Psyche, and the God comes and everything changes. She, Psyche Oriol was led there by Fox for her to stand judgment before the judge. Remember, she took her case against the gods into that inner mountain chamber, and the judge heard her. But the Fox is taking her now to a, another judge who's going to hear her. So... The two are looking in the pool, and then we hear this voice, you, two are, you also are a psyche, and then, and this is why the God is coming, okay? Here's my, I've got two questions. One is, are we to understand be, by what's happened, because remember when Fox takes her, he says, um, she says, um, will there be any hope for mercy? He says, hope and fear, plenty of hope and fear. And um, he says, no justice, because he knows if it were justice, she would end up being nothing. But he said, infinite mercy. So he takes her to this, this um, garden setting with this chamber uh, to wait for the God, to wait for the approach of the God. And the God approaches. 
But before he gets there, she has this vision in the pool. Are we to understand that the judgment has been made? Or because we don't see her in the presence of the God or the God appearing. Just at that point, the narrative breaks and we're back. Now, a couple of things. One is, on a, on a realistic level, on a naturalistic level, Psyche's her sister, a real sister. On an allegorical level, she's an image of the soul. So what we saw in the murals were images of Psyche undergoing those trials for Oriole when Oriole was undergoing them. So she's, she's an image of something working inside the soul, invisibly in her life, even if she didn't see it. God is at work somehow. At the end, when the fox takes her there to wait for the god, and she has this vision, and the, the voice says, you are, psych you are also Psyche. Are we to take that as an indication that the judgment has been made? Or is that a prelude? Does he break it off there because she still hasn't met with the Lord, with Cupid or Christ, to hear that judgment? That's the first question. And the other is, remember when it breaks off, I ended my first book with the words, no answer. I know now, Lord, why you have utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face questions die away, what other answer would suffice? Only words, words, to be let out to battle against other words. Long did I hate you, long did I fear you, I might. It breaks off. We don't know what was said. Um, um, Aaron Arnhem comments on it. But So two questions. One, does the judgment take place here? Or is there still something to be done? Has she received forgiveness? Um, how do we understand the ending? And, and what follows might? Those are the last words. Of the, any thoughts on? What did St. Augustine say? He, that sounds like what he said, you know, when he read the... the, the oh, in the I, Confessions? Yeah. Long did I resist you. Long did I not hate you. But it, I wonder, I, I don't know what the rest of the quote is. Yeah. But I read, that sounds like him. Huh. Is she forgiven, or is there still something ahead? What, how do we understand the end? I don't know. I took it as she was forgiven. I can't make a judgment. Can you make, can you give a reason? Can you make a case? What? No, there's hope and fear and mercy, but no justice. Well, not real justice. Yeah. For all well, of us. Her, this, this aspect of her being naked and and then finding out she's changed. I mean, it's a rebirth and a re. It's a new image. It's a new. It, she's a new person, basically. Is mm -hmm. is what I and beautiful. And, right, beautiful. Yeah. I mean, so the whole thing has changed. She's so being being that she's a new person. I mean, it, I, I I take it then that hey, whatever it was, you you've been for you're forgiven. I mean, basically. Why do you think Lewis stopped it there then instead of if she was brought there to um, to have the God bring a judgment against her, why did he stop before the two of them are face to face? He wants us to come to that conclusion because that's stronger than being told. Say it again, Corey. He wants us to. He wants us to come to that conclusion because then we would believe it more strongly than if someone told us. Told that's what the conclusion was. It's interesting. So it's it's placed. It's 
putting us in a position of testing our own belief. Faulkner, Faulkner was saying that, wasn't he? Faulkner what? Faulkner was saying that. I can't remember where, but it was where, I think it was, it had something to do with phlegm, where people will believe things if they come to that conclusion themselves. Oh, yeah. He, do, he doesn't want to tell Gavin because, um, because right. Gavin's not, you, you only really listen when you're afraid, when you're scared. When she writes the last paragraph in her book that she doesn't really finish because she dies mid-sentence, she says, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer before your face questions die away. So I would take that to mean she has been thoroughly redeemed. Um, maybe she doesn't yet that maybe she's still, I think she's still regretting her, her sins because in the paragraph just above that she says, what have I ever done to please the people? Why should they weep for me? I ought to have had Dar in here and learned to love him and taught him if I could to love them. So she's, she's still seeing all her faults and feeling regret for them. If what you say is True, Jean. What other answer would suffice? If you're face to face, is there any need for words? Is there anything to say anymore? Right, right. there isn't. No. Yeah. She knows. I mean, I think, I think we're left with the fact that Oreo is at peace with God, not with what she's done. Yeah. She's honest. Yeah. But she's at peace with God. Yeah, in which case. I don't think it. I don't think we need to know more than that. I mean, that to me... come to that point, wouldn't that yeah. be wonderful? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, I think that's partly what's... If you're face-to-face, -face, there's nothing more to say. But but then why would she go on, long did I hate you, long did I might... What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Maureen, what's what? behind, what follows that might? I don't know, I thought maybe she was getting ready to go to purgatory. She's had one judgment and then you know, purgatory meant to get the next one. It's funny you would say that. When, when she described herself walking in the desert up to the mountain, remember, to, um, with the, the, the cup, I think? She described herself as going hundreds and hundreds of years. Those, those are her words. I couldn't read that without thinking. She doesn't need to go through purgatory because we're to understand what just took place in all of that was hundreds of years of purgatory. Okay. Um, well, we'll come back after Easter. I hope, I hope that you guys all carry this with you in Easter and that the ungood inside of each one of us is we help put it to rest a little bit, particularly with the work that we've done with each other. Um, I hope you guys have a good rest of Lent, and um, I hope you have a, a blessed Holy Week and a blessed Easter, okay? You've got the mail to remind you of the ungood part. So are we trying at the Monday, Monday after Easter? Yeah. Okay, good.
you bring that? What? That rabbit? Yeah. Oh, did you? How did you know? Because I froze in here last week. Did you? 